Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Did you grow up in Stamford? Do you remember your parents or grandparents talking about the shops they went to back in the 40s and 50s? A new documentary highlights that era when family-owned businesses made up the city's vibrant core and how redevelopment in the 1960s pushed them out. It's called Remembering the Family Store, and we talked to the film's director and some Stanford residents featured in the documentary that's coming up. First tomorrow, August 9th, is the Connecticut primary. Will you be voting? The races to watch include four candidates competing in the Democratic and Republican primaries for Secretary of the State. There's the Treasurer's Race, where three candidates are vying for the Democratic vote. And which of the three Republicans running has the best chance to go up against U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal in November? The Connecticut Mirror's Mark Pazniokas joins us to break down everything you need to know about primary day. Mark is Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. So, Mark, I just got back to Connecticut after a week in Vermont, and I know and you know plenty of people still out of town vacationing. Remind us why Connecticut has an August primary and how that impacts turnout. Sure. Um, It used to be in September, and the complaint then was September was too close to November and that the winner of a primary would have insufficient time to rally the party behind them and go forward. So they opted for August, which has its own downsides, um, such as Lucy Nell Potential being out of the state. (laughs) I'm back. (laughs) And, uh, you know, interestingly, I mean, the turnout from September to August has not been that different, at least in the times I've looked. Um, But, yeah, it's certainly a problem. August tends to be a sleepy time. And uh, so there's been uh, an effort to wake people up. I think uh, Donald Trump uh, contributed to waking people up, at least in the Republican primary with a with a fairly dramatic phone call uh, Thursday night out to Montville, Connecticut during a Republican cookout where <laughs> I was in attendance chatting with people. Uh, and having some good barbecue. So uh, you mentioned that that uh, that Republican uh, cookout, the candidates running, Themis Claridis, Theora Levy, and Peter Lumage, uh, Trump endorsing Levy. So what was the reaction? And does that endorsement make any difference so late in the campaign? Well, so that's the question. It's is was there sufficient time and resources on the part of Leora Levy to fully capitalize on uh, Trump's endorsement? Then there's the the second and very important question of what weight that carries. Primaries in both parties tend to uh, attract the people who are most passionate. So on the Democratic side, they tend to be more liberal than the average voter. On the Republican side, it tends to be the conservative base. So uh, the conventional wisdom is a Trump endorsement is valuable. His record 
in all the primaries nationally has been mixed. He's had some big successes and some defeats. So that is part of the subtext here in Connecticut. You know, will the primary Tuesday now sort of be a gut check for Republicans about the identity of a party that's really been in transition for, you know, the, the past several decades about how conservative it is, how much in line with the national Republican agenda or Connecticut Republicans. In the General Assembly, they've kind of gone their own way. Um, they had a string of successes, almost um, becoming even with the Democrats in 2016. And then the election of President Trump, it proved to be a disaster for Republicans. It really energized the Democratic base. Um, Democrats uh, won strong majorities in the General Assembly. And that's sort of where we are today. So that will be one of the interesting things on Tuesday. Um, Leora Levy um, has been struggling for weeks, if not longer, to make this a two-person race. You have Themis Claritis, who is a social moderate, uh, she is a supporter of abortion rights. She voted for the Sandy Hook gun controls. She is a supporter of gay marriage, but she's also a fiscal conservative who, uh, with Larry Caffaro before her, led the comeback uh, in the House of Representatives in the General Assembly by Republicans. And, you know, Le Levy has been trying to sort of push out Peter Lamage, who is another, like her, is a, another Trump loyalist and conservative. So Trump's endorsement Thursday night certainly helps brand Levy as the chosen one among conservatives. And that that alone is a great help for her, whether it's enough to put her up, you know, over the top over Claritus who was endorsed by the Republican Party at their convention and is endorsed by uh, all types of Republicans in the General Assembly, conservatives and moderates. The Republicans this year uh, have taken a rather pragmatic view. Um, even conservatives who disagree with Claritas on abortion or gun control have rallied behind her saying, look, she is the one who has won elections over a 22 year period in the Naugatuck Valley in a swing district. She's the one with the political skills to take on Blumenthal, whose approval rating has dimmed this cycle, but he still has significant leads and significant advantages in a state that is solid, has been solidly blue um, for a long time when it comes to U.S. Senate and congressional races. Hmm. I should mention Themis Claritus is married to Greg Butler, who is on Connecticut Public's Board of Trustees. Wanted to get that uh, out of the way, uh, Mark. So when we think about this particular race and the August primary, what traditional turnout is, what's expected tomorrow? Well, you know, four years ago, um, the turnout was 31%. And four years ago, it was a pretty lively year. You had uh, a five-way Republican primary for governor. You had five candidates who were spending significant funds trying to rev up the base. And the best they could do, again, was 31%. So that's really the question Tuesday. Do you do better than that? Or is it is it going to be in the 20s? And I've got mixed signals talking to Republicans. Some say that due to uh, President Biden's struggles, although that's certainly blunted a little bit by uh, a very good weekend for the president. But, you know, Republicans 
feel a, some Republicans say they feel a sense of opportunity, but there are several other Republicans who have told me, you know, they're not seeing um, the the concrete evidence of greater interest. And that concrete, those metrics include things like how many absentee ballots have been taken out and returned. And, you know, in different places, I'm told it's very low. I've talked to a registrar in Eastern Connecticut who said not much at all. And then somebody down in Fairfield County. Um, So that does not bode well for a big turnout. You're hearing Mark Pazniokas here on Where We Live. He's Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. As we talk about tomorrow's primary in Connecticut, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Can we talk about the, I think, the fourth congressional district race? So uh, Jim Himes uh, beating his Republican opponent uh, pretty handily, but then there are two Republicans that are hoping to go against him in the fall. What can you tell us? Sure. Republicans this year have largely succeeded in, you know in in shedding their very bad habit of having nasty nasty primaries uh in districts in which they have enough problems as it is trying to take out a democratic incumbent the exception this year is the fourth district of fairfield county um jamie stevenson the former first selectman of darianne was the overwhelming choice at the convention uh to be their challenger against jim himes um, Michael Goldstein, who has uh, has very few resources, but he's qualified for a primary, and he's hanging in there. Um, Stevenson is favored, and again, uh, this is not a district that offers great opportunities for Republicans. Even though this was the last district mm-hmm. won by a Republican, Chris Shays finally lost in 2008. He was the last Republican to serve in the House from Connecticut. Um, it has become a solid Democratic district um, by by many, many metrics. So, you know, that does not look to be a, a pickup opportunity for the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens. <laughs> When we think about the statewide races, there's Secretary of the State, which has generated a lot of interest since Merrill is retiring. There are four candidates total in both the Dem and GOP primaries. Can you tell us about them, Mark? Yes. On the Democratic side, um, identity politics has really played um, a role. The Democrats have been very eager to further diversify their statewide tickets. Um, The party since 1962 has always had at least one person of color on the ticket this year they were looking to further diversify it and in the secretary of state's race um they are going to end up with a nominee who is a black woman from norwalk who won the endorsement stephanie thomas a one-term state representative or maritza bond who is a latina from new haven she is the director of public health in the city um, they agree on on the basic issues about ballot access. They both favor early voting. Um, they do not see the need for uh, photo ID for voters. Uh, on the Republican side, you have two candidates who are leaning into President Trump's uh, complaints about voter integrity, uh, election integrity, to varying degrees. You have the endorsed candidate is Dominic Rapini, who uh, once chaired a group called Fight Voter Fraud. And then you have Terry Wood, who is a state representative 
uh, from Fairfield County. And they both favor um, voter ID. Um, Stephanie Thomas the other day said, look, that that is a solution in search of a problem. There is scant evidence of in-person voter fraud somebody impersonating someone else. But this has become one of the wedge issues between Democrats and Republicans. Um, The GAO had a study years ago saying that this is really not a problem, but that if you do require photo ID, it does tend to hit um, minorities, poorer folks um, in some parts of the country, it is not that easy to get a, a, f- a government photo ID if you are not a driver. Um, so that's sort of, you know, the dividing line in the Secretary of State's race uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans. Mm-hmm. On the Democratic side, there's also the state treasurer race with three candidates. Eric Russell has the party's endorsement, but tell us about uh, his challengers and is, has this been an interesting campaign? Well, no, it hasn't. (laughs) How's that? Um, Again, this without um, a governor's race or a senatorial race at the top of the ticket, it's hard to get people excited about this. Um, So the three candidates, again, we have to go to identity politics to a certain degree. Uh, Eric Russell is, is a black man who, if elected, he would be the first openly gay black statewide elected official, according to the Victory Fund, uh, a national LGBT uh, advocacy group. Uh, You have Karen Dubois Walton, who is um, very well known in New Haven. She was the chief of staff to the former mayor. She uh, chairs the housing authority. She chairs the state board of education. And then you have Dita Bargava, um, who, who, who tried to run statewide office previously. She is of of Indian descent. She has run, to my thinking, probably the most aggressive campaign. She has had some inventive ads trying to engage the Democratic base. She has made the case that the treasurer can be a player in various issues of social activism by using the state's uh, pension funds to pressure corporations to be more progressive on how uh, they treat their employees, how they provide reproductive services, how they pressure states where um, governments are curtailing abortion rights. Um, And, you know, so that has been an effort to, again, to try to uh, excite people beyond the question of the very important work of who can uh, return the best um, investment, uh, return the best uh, returns on the uh, pension investments. Right. Uh, Before we let you go, Mark, I don't want to forget to mention with uh, the Connecticut General Assembly seats uh, that are up uh, this year. When we think about the primaries, uh, two Pacific areas that are interesting, Bridgeport and West Haven. Uh, Can you tell us about those races? Yes. It's very quiet summer for uh, unusually quiet summer for primaries in the General Assembly. Um, There are only seven, um, six in the House, two Republicans, four Democrats and one in the Senate. 
Now, Bridgeport has two of the seven primaries. You have Dennis Bradley, a state senator who is facing a criminal trial over allegations arising uh, from campaign um, finance activities. And he was not endorsed. He is challenged, or actually he is challenging um, the endorsed candidate, Heron Gaston, who is a clergyman and a Yale admissions officer. Um, Jack Hennessy, a state rep from Bridgeport, has been in the legislature for 18 years. Um, Democrats there have suggested it's uh, time to move on. Um, there's a fellow named Marcus Brown, who is a leader on the city council, who is the endorsed candidate. Um, probably the more interesting uh, fight is in West Haven. Or um, Trinae McGee, who's a young woman who was elected in a special election after uh, Representative Michael DeMassa was forced to resign after his arrest on corruption charges. Um, McGee is uh, un not unique, but unusual in the General Assembly. She is a young black woman, a Democrat, opposed to abortion. Um, the Democrats have sort of struggled with the idea of how big a tent they are when it comes to tolerance for people who are not in favor of abortion rights. She is challenged by a young man named Joe Miller, uh, who is in favor of abortion rights. Um, both of them tell me um, this has not really become a proxy fight for the question of the Democrats' uh, tolerance of diversity on abortion. There have been no outside groups going in trying to make this a bigger fight. So it's it's been a fight between the two of them, two young people. Uh, and they also point out that, uh, you know, they're also hearing about other issues, the issues you hear everywhere, you know, inflation, cost of living, gas prices. And then, of course, in West Haven, there's the backdrop of the city's financial problems. You know, they are under state oversight and uh, the corruption scandal that erupted last year. So voters should definitely turn out uh, when we talk about these specific races. Uh, so Mark Pazniokas, thank you for that preview. Um, again, we mentioned that um, turnout usually is around 30%. Maybe it won't be as sleepy as, as uh, we're thinking, but we appreciate the details you gave us on the races to watch tomorrow. My pleasure, Lucy. Mark is Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, a new documentary explores the mom and pop shops in the city of Stamford from the 1940s to mid-1960s. It was produced by the Jewish Historical Society of Fairfield County to help viewers understand the city's legacy. We're going to talk to the film's director and some Stamford residents with ties to these family businesses. That's right after a short break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. 
Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today, the city of Stanford is known for its corporate headquarters and high-rises. It's one of the fastest-growing cities in America. In the 1940s, Stanford's downtown had a very different look, but it was still bustling, thanks to many family-owned businesses like Carp's Hardware and Grand Central Market. A new documentary produced by the Jewish Historical Society of Fairfield County takes a look back at this era, highlighting the people who were a vital part of Stanford's growth in the mid-20th century. Viewers also learn about the urban redevelopment in the 1960s that pushed many out of the city's core. Here's a preview from Remembering the Family Store. He moved from 497 Main to Summer Street because of the development. He was a longtime resident and he wanted the city to grow. Redevelopment didn't affect us um, as adversely as it might have affected other businesses. They owned the, the, the property, the building, and so um, that got sold. And then when they sold, you know, got moved over from Pacific Street, they went over to Hamilton Avenue. And that stayed in business for a while. My father's business was affected enormously when urban renewal came, and he knew that he had to move. We lost some character I don't know, some personality that was lost in the transition. Wise's paint store ended when Pacific Street ended, and they destroyed the core center of Stamford, Connecticut. Those were some of the voices of Stanford business owners and the children of former owners of mom and pop shops featured in that documentary, Remembering the Family Store. Joining us now on Zoom is Gail G. Trell, who's a production coordinator for the film, and she's past president of the Jewish Historical Society of Fairfield County. Gail, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And I should mention you're a lifelong resident of Stanford, Connecticut. Yes, I was born here. My father was born here. My grandparent and great-grandparent were also here. So this film must mean a lot to you, Gail, as a, a Stanford native. The film highlights or spotlights 24 businesses. And I understand that the project started thanks to a collection of photographs. What can you tell us? Yes, it started with Lester Charlack, who is um, who collected photos and, and so, saw a potential for having a story. So he collected all these photographs and made a slide presentation and he went from group to group, church to organization, and told the story as the pictures went along. And so we, at the results of those presentations was excited, excitement from the audience that we said, why don't we make a documentary? Mm. Um, Margaret Staper Costa is with us. She's director of the film, Remembering the Family Store, and owner and president of Aries Productions. Margaret, welcome. Um, nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So you got involved and you've interviewed a lot of people for the film. So tell us about that time in Stanford, what downtown looked like, and a little bit about the families that owned those stores. Um, in total, I interviewed uh, 34 individuals over, it initially was just two sessions within a month of each other, 2019, 2020, and then with COVID, we were able to, um, everything got 
got put on hold. Obviously, the whole world got put on hold. I was able to interview more people. And interviewing so many people, um, there was just such a camaraderie of these business owners, children, grandchildren of the business owners that reflect on that time in Stanford just so fondly about how it was truly such a community. Everyone looked out for everyone. Um, and everyone, there was competition, but everyone just tried to help each other out. And if someone had a, 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 a diner, uh, business owners would come to the diner. And then if the diner needed an appliance, they would go to one of the local businesses to buy the appliance. So I was just really struck by just the kindness and the camaraderie of all these business owners during that period of time in Stanford. It's also a nice reminder watching the film about how so many of these businesses uh, are immigrant owned and uh, quite a, a diversity of, of business owners and people that were in downtown Stanford uh, in that era, Margaret. Yeah, I mean, the immigration and post-World War II development of Stanford was was remarkable and the diversity that was in downtown Stanford um, was truly it was truly amazing. It, it, one person described it as a melting pot, and it truly was. Gail, you said that uh, you've had, your family has been in Stanford for a long time. So, name a couple of the businesses uh, when you look back and you hear stories about uh, some of the shops and the relationships that these owners had with people in the city. Well, I certainly learned much more than I thought I knew from watching the film. Um, I knew many of these places, um, Frank Martin clothing. Um, I'm my father went shopping there. Um, we had um, Grand Central Market where we would have gone shopping, the fish market down on Pacific Street. Um, my, I'm sure my mother was there. Um, we, we were friends with the uh, Kramer's Fabric. I knew that family well. I knew the carp uh, stationery very well. Uh, so I was, you know, it. this whole film brought the world alive. Mm. We're talking about Remembering the Family Store. It's a documentary about uh, Stanford from the 1940s through mid-1960s. Uh, with us on Zoom is Gail G. Trell, production coordinator for the film, and Margaret Stapor-Costa, who is director of the documentary. You can join us if you're a Stanford resident, if you have memories of that time or know of the shops from hearing your parents or grandparents uh, talking about what Stanford's downtown looked at, one, what it looked like. Like back then. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. And when we think about that core, Margaret, you know, and the streets uh, that were profiled where these businesses were, Pacific and Maine, Bedford and Lower Summer Street, can you talk more about, you know, how big of an area this was and, you know, the, the people that even came into Stamford because of these shops? Um, the area, I, I would say it was so big. It, it was, for my knowledge, just by doing the, the film, the stores, the, the streets, they were all intertwined with each other. And it was the downtown area. Um, and it was amazing. I, I found a lot of, when I was doing research, a lot of maps that the city have. And you could just see, and the maps were in the film, um, just how, you know, Main Street went into this street and Bedford Street went into that street. Um, so it, it was a very consolidated downtown area. 
Um, and I do believe that people from, you know, surrounding areas did do a lot of their shopping in this downtown store area. Um, it was a very well-known area that uh, people flocked to. Gail, did you want to add to that? A lot of New Yorkers uh, heading to a specific uh, street where there were um, some clothing shops and what was known for fashion? Uh, were they known for fashion? Sure, they, we did have um, some clothing shops because not only the people that were interviewed, but we have tons of photos showing up in the film that we didn't have time to highlight specifically, but we have, we show them in the film. Um, people came to Stanford also to the movie theaters um, because we were showing all the first run movie theaters and the, uh, our documentary is being shown at the Avon, which is one of the theaters that still exists. And it, um, were we able to mention that people who want to see this film, it's showing in uh, on August 24th and August 29th at the Avon? That's we'll right, and we, have, <laughs> and we have information about that on our website, Gail, ctpublic.org, slash uh, where we live. Uh, Margaret, did you want to add to some of the streets that were notable during that time? Uh, well, to me, Pacific Street was the street. Everyone that spoke about Pacific Street just said that was that was the street. I don't think I met one person who I interviewed that did not reference Pacific Street. They may not have had that soundbite included in the documentary, but everyone spoke about Pacific Street. I didn't grow up uh, in Stanford, but I feel like I could walk down and identify every building on Pacific Street, all the, the local businesses. Um, so I think Pacific Street was the, the dominant street um, that just contained every kind of business you can imagine. And as one of the people I interviewed said, when um, Pacific Street ended like that 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 whole part of stanford kind of ended with it right so a vibrant area and then urban renewal which we saw happening across the country in the mid-1960s what happened to the the city's core margaret well urban renewal i found that was just such an interesting concept because as you mentioned it was happening across the country and the businesses in stanford when I, if I interviewed 34 people, half of them said it was the worst thing that ever happened to Stanford. And the other half said, well, we didn't like it, but it made Stanford what it is today. Um, a lot of people heard the rumblings that urban redevelopment was coming and they made plans to figure out how to save their stores. Other people just couldn't regroup and they you know, really suffered and their businesses ended. Um, so it was it was just such a, a very interesting time, what happened to a lot of these businesses um, and what people did to survive and how many businesses you know, like Wise's Paint. David Weiss said in your opening, um, Wise's Paint ended when Pacific Street ended. So it, it, it was in a lot of ways great for Stanford. But when you speak to the people whose livelihoods and businesses that they spent their lives developing, um, redevelopment ended those businesses. Uh, there is a sadness to it. Right. Gail, another part of the, the film that I thought was important to highlight is when we think about the people who also lived in uh, the, this, this part of the city, including African-Americans, and once urban remo removal renewal started and eminent domain removed these businesses and apartments, they were displaced as well. 
Yes, that was one of the, the downsides and the heartbreak for many of the people who live there because um, all the stores that were on Pacific Street and Atlantic Street, they had apartments above the stores. So when the stores and the street had to be uh, demolished to build, well, what turned out to be the Stanford Town Center, um, they had to find other places to live and it was upheaval. It was disappointment. It was tragic for many. Yes. And to add to that, there is a section in the film that spoke about um, how many families were being evicted during the whole redevelopment process and that the um, black community did had a lot of protests because a lot of their housing was being taken away. Um, and there is a section in the film, as you know, Lucy, from watching it, where it describes um, the protests that were going on in Stanford regarding these um, evictions that were occurring. Yeah, and, and many of them ended up having to relocate to the city of Bridgeport. Uh, Gail, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some of the businesses that remained uh, that uh, the city was not able to move through eminent domain. Can you can you share those with us? So, um, let me ask that question. Ask the question one more time, please. Are there some businesses that remained uh, despite urban renewal and the city's eminent domain uh, that um, prevailed against uh, uh, being uh, moved from that area? Well, some of the uh, stores were in the right place, like Wolf's Cleaners. They did not have to move. They are still there. Um, they still are existing. Um, we had... Um, downtown we also have a, a few other places that are still in existence our galago's funeral home um grand central market is now um gnp uh curly's is still here um that's the Car diner Car that's the diner um and we just know it as curly so vividly <laughs> um uh, of course, we have Thomas uh, Bradford speaking about his barbershop that wasn't affected. Um, but Carp's Hardware moved and now is Rocky's. Um, so let me see what else. We I have think that's here. a good list, uh, Gail. Uh, Margaret, uh, when you've been, you obviously did a lot of research and interviewed a lot of people for this film. What are some takeaways that you want to leave our listeners with? Um, that the the community of Stanford, whether you go back to the 40s or you now fast forward to present day, um, just a, a great community full of wonderful, wonderful people that really appreciate their city and their neighbors and their community. Um, I, I'm, as I said, I'm not from Stanford, but I feel now like I am just because I've met so many wonderful people um and it's it's a fabulous history i would encourage anyone that's interested in history per se or specifically stanford connecticut's history um to come out and see the film because it really is it really is a representation of how the community was and is um today that's right and you can get more information at our website for the film being shown at the avon theater later in august our website ctpublic.org slash where we live thanks to margaret staper costa director of the documentary remembering the family store Pre appreciated you coming on the show margaret thank you so much for having me and also here with us gail g trell production coordinator for the film and past president of the jewish historical society of fairfield county gail i learned a lot from the film thank you and to your members uh for the thank production you. thank you so so much um i'm glad to be here 
Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from two people featured in the documentary, Remembering the Family Store. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Remembering the Family Store, it's a new documentary that highlights the era when family-owned businesses in the 1940s and 50s made up Stanford's vibrant core and how redevelopment in the mid-1960s pushed many of them out. Two people featured in the film join us now. First on Zoom, Steve Karp who is a lifelong Stanford resident, and he narrated Remembering the Family Store. Steve, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Nice to be here. So we learned a little watching the film about Grandpa Harry. Tell us about him and your, and your family's businesses back then. Well, Grandpa Harry was a very colorful character in Stanford, but he was the first of three generations of carps, uh, at least my family of carps, there are a whole lot of carps in Stamford, Connecticut, <laughs> and many of whom had businesses of their own. But my grandfather, Harry, uh, originally started a newspaper and cigar business that morphed into a toy store, that morphed into a stationery store, and finally morphed into an office furniture and supply business. And, uh, but that was by, by the third generation is when that happened. And the businesses um, remained open until the 1980s? Uh, it did, actually. The, the business was, was sold in 1982. However, my, my brother, uh, and, and he really is part of that third generation, continued the business under a different name. And uh, uh, we fortunately owned the building that, that our business was located in. And... Uh, uh, he was able to successfully run the business pretty much right through, uh, oh, I think it was 2007. What do you remember about uh, that time when uh, the, the store was still owned by your family? Did you work there as a kid? I did. I was a delivery boy, and mm -hmm. I, I loved it. I, I worked there during the summers, and I, I loved uh, delivering stationery and helped uh, lug some of that office furniture up, up stairs to various offices and uh, uh, we had some some very interesting <laughs> adventures doing that sometimes the sometimes the desks didn't fit through the door and we had to be very creative in how to get them to, to to get into the office I mentioned you narrated this documentary and so learning about these other families and their connections to Stanford you know, how did you feel when you you saw the whole story uh, put together in this film well, I, having grown up in Stanford, I, and I should say that, that my participation in the film was really because of uh, Gail Trell. She likes Gail G. Trell. She's really fastidious about the G. But in any case, Gail and I grew up together in Stanford, and she knew that I was in the theater business and uh, invited me to participate in this film. There were three stages to this project, and the first was simply a projection of photos, but the second was a, a, a uh, presentation of these photos, and my job was to add verbal descriptions of these stores, blurbs, really, and there were about 150 of them, and, and, and all of that 
tended to, when we did the film, morph into my narration of the film. So the, the, the live presentation was kind of background for me to learn about these stores, even though I knew myself about them, having grown up in the city. But, uh, but the narration actually came out of the original work done for the live presentation. Mm. Nostalgia for that era? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it, the movie is, is really kind of a walk down memory lane, uh, which is not to say it's Pollyannish by any of the enemy, because it's a very honest film and hits hard at why these stores didn't survive. But nostalgic because it was a, a time of trusting. People trusted. People were more open. Um, it was a mutual dependence in the community. People, if they didn't know each other directly, knew of people and knew of their reputations. Uh, it, it, was, it was a time that you can find that time today, but it's scarce. It's hard to find uh, life the way it was back then. But the movie, the movie actually has, I think, a, a universal appeal and relevance because every, every city and town across the country has, has uh, morphed from small businesses to, to, uh, to the mall. The mall actually has become right. the dominant uh, retail uh, location, I think, in most cities around the country. And the mall that has many vacancies and needed to be uh, rethought of after a lot of shops closed. That's the Stanford Town Center. You're hearing Steve Karp here on the show, narrator of Remembering the Family Store, looking back at mom and pop shops from the 1940s through mid-60s in the city of Stanford. For another perspective, on the phone with us is Thomas Bradford, who's featured in the film, and he's a barber based in Stanford. Thomas, welcome to the show. Oh, yes, I'm here. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the show, Thomas. You're live on the air with us. I loved hearing about uh, what brought you to Stanford from South Carolina. Uh, I guess you were recruited uh, to work at a barber shop. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that shop. Well, I, uh, uh, <clears throat> I was young then, you might say, you know, just, you know, uh, in school, you know, barber school and everything. And, uh, it just so happened that uh, uh, someone needed a barber in Connecticut, which I'd never been here before. And being young, you know, you want to drive and see different places. So when I was asked, I accepted a job. So when I came to Stanford, uh, it was hard for me to get used to people, and uh, I came to left town. <laughs> so when I got uh, got the job, and the people like me, that's, that's how a barber is. Um, you get a barber get hooked into everybody. You lack a community person. You know the city, people, and places, and everything. And uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And uh, that's, that's how I wind up uh, getting there, getting there, and getting to know people here. I understand that you have a, a daughter who now works in your, your barber shop. Can you tell us about her? Well, I have two of them working. here. I, uh, one thing, my uh, oldest son didn't want to be a barber. He stopped uh, for stimulation at But the two daughters used to cut hair. And I guess they sort of took after their father. 
the um, the uh, younger one came in first, and the old one she was like cutting everybody around. <laughs> so I told her, I said, "Once you get her and get your license, come on in and join us." And she did, and that was years ago. And the two of them still actually they practically run the place because. Uh, they always said, I speak cold. They said, no, Pop, you'll be right. Yes, uh, yes I'm like, uh, and, and, and she wants to them, I guess, get like for me to uh, give them that little self-respect and back up or whatever, whatever. So we all like that now. We all like it. And people love us. That, that's the main thing with a barber. If people uh, like you, the church, everywhere, the community likes you. You're a community person. And Thomas, uh, for yeah, Thomas, for our listeners who um, don't know your shop and uh, the city of Stanford, tell us where your barber shop is located now. Uh, it's uh, it's on the west side. It's uh, right next to Bank of America on the west side. Uh, people up here is right at the top of the hill, uh, right on where uh, West Main Street and. Uh, and Richmond here meet. My brother's shop is uh, just on the other side of there, right in that corner right there. You get a pass. Well, Thomas, it's been good to hear from you. Glad to know that your business is still going strong uh, despite uh, a lot of the changes in, in downtown Stanford. Uh, Steve, you're still with us. When we think about um, the shops that did close or had to move, we think about how cities can lose their character, even though Stanford is is one of the fastest-growing cities uh, today. And you know, a lot of people see that as a positive. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, it's... Uh, uh, as I think Marge and Gail talked about, there are, there are people in the community who like what happened in terms of Stanford's development into this huge corporate headquarters city. And there are those who are not so, so keen on it. And I think the people who are not so keen on it are the people who have uh, grown up in Stanford and remembered Stanford uh, as being smaller and simpler and uh, again more open and trusting and when when things like uh, values like loyalty uh, were were important particularly in business between a customer uh, and a store owner you know these things uh, again you can find them today but they're 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 more scarce than they used to be. And I think people who grew up in Stanford kind of uh, are nostalgic for the old days. And it's kind of what, what the film presents. And it, it does take you back. And which is not to say that, that all is, 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 has been bad in Stanford in terms of its growth and development. Uh, corporations have, have been terrific in terms of providing employment and also financially helping a lot of the nonprofit organizations in Stanford, including my own theater called the Stanford Theater Works. But, uh, uh, but the development has, is, uh, has mixed emotions among, among the people in the community. Mm. When you drive around Stanford, the downtown area today, Steve, uh, what do you think about in terms of you know, the footprint that, there, that is there now? Well, it is interesting because right, right in the mall, right in the center of the mall, is where 
my grandfather's store used to be. Yeah, this whole urban redevelopment process uh, knocked down all of these family businesses and was replaced essentially by the mall. And the mall spanned uh, a good deal of uh, the downtown Stamford. And, uh, but, but, but when I go into the mall, I, I can't help but think at, at a particularly particular location in, in the mall, this is exactly where Carps was located. Carps being the toy store at the time. And uh, you look around uh, the community of, 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 of the mall and other stores that exist, and you, you can't help but think, well, this is where that store was. This is where that one was. And you kind of imagine the, the interaction that goes on amongst the store owners and the customers. It's, uh, it's really, it's quite fun, actually, to do that. <laughs> Well, you've been hearing Steve Karp here on the show, narrator of Remembering the Family Store, also a lifelong Stanford resident. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about uh, your family's history in the city of Stanford, Steve. Thank you, Lucy. Pleasure to be here. And also thanks to Thomas Bradford, who joined us by the phone. He's a barber based in Stanford, Connecticut. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Where We Live, senior producer Tess Terrible, with help from talk show intern Anya Grindalski. Thanks to Jean Amatruda, who's our tech director today. And coming up tomorrow... We're going to talk about how racial disparities in maternal health care are being addressed in light of Roe versus Wade's overturning. We're going to hear from Connecticut nurse midwife Dr. Lucinda Canty, who recently founded Lucinda's House to help local women of color and to address severe maternal morbidity. We hope you join us.